Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and non-fiction writer. This week on the pod, we discuss the Gemini to end all Geminis, Josephine Baker. In this episode, we'll start out with This Week in Love, a segment that brings you up to date on what's been on our minds this week in the world of romance. Today, we talk about content warnings and the unlikely question mark place they've turned up this week. Then it's time for the love story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today, we'll be talking about Josephine Baker, the famed American dancer who became a star in Paris. Finally, we'll round things off with a game of Marry, Fuck, Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters from our main love story. Let's just say Naf picked the characters this week, so expect the unexpected. This podcast does contain explicit language and discusses adult themes. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. And now it's time for This Week in Love. And this week, I have actually come up with a This Week in Love first. It's time for our first meta love story. So this is a love story about a love story. Let me ask you guys. It's more of just a story about a love story, but don't think about it too hard. (laughs) Um, The whole point of that is that I know the word meta, and I want you guys to know that I know it. With that in mind, I want you guys to guess. There's a play that on um, that is currently running on the West End okay. that uh, has been dinged this week for putting a content warning. This is the content warning. It contains portrayals of abuse, abusive language, and coercive control. Taming of the Shrew. No. <gasps> oh, but good guess. <laughs> a good one. My mom won't even watch that. It was written in 1912. Oh, that year. Oh, that year. (laughs) It's called The Titanic's the Best Ship Ever. (laughs) Something by George Bernard Shaw, or is it Pygmalion? It's Pygmalion. Well done. (laughs) Nice. Oh, that was very good. Such a good guesser. Well, well done. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, The Old Vic is running Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. And uh, with that in mind, yeah, the, the they have put a content warning on it that it contains portrayals of abuse, abusive language, and coercive control. Now, I'd like you to come up with your best guess at what the Daily Mail's headline about this was. <laughs> Everybody at home, you can play along. <laughs> My unfair lady? No. Pig-headed males... Ruin theater again. It's the Daily Mail, Naf. Uh, they're very, uh... Pigs! Exclamation mark. <laughs> Liberal pigs. George Bernard snore. No, but that wouldn't work. Oh. Uh, they, would, they wouldn't know the play, right? Be honest. <laughs> I think you guys have lost the thread. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so this was the Daily Mail's headline, which made me laugh, but also seems pretty tame for a Daily Mail headline. 
theater puts coercive control trigger warning on musical romance My Fair Lady inspiration play, they really don't think much of their readers. (laughs) Over plot where Professor gives Cockney flower seller Dick fiction lessons. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's the headline? Oh, well, what Scottish the Scottish Sun, which I'd never heard of before, went for My Scare Lady. Woke oh. woke theater bosses slap bizarre warning on classic play My Fair Lady. I will say that the Sun's article ended with the line The Sun told previously about a backlash over the old Vic's move towards neutral toilets. <laughs> Which, again, makes no sense unless you're looking at this from a very particular angle. Both articles mentioned the cost of the tickets between 75 and 140 pounds. Both quoted Anne Whittacombe. Do you know who this is, Chris? How would you describe her? A piece of work. (laughs) That's that's how they tagged her. No. (laughs) I mean, they might as well have. One said, uh, in quotes, Former conservative MP and strictly come dancing participant is how they described her. And I was like, I think I've got her number. <laughs> I feel like I understand. I think she's a virgin. I think that's one of the <laughs> I, like I, one of the famous things about Anne Whittingham. She's a woman in her 70s now, I think, and is a kind of like a famous public virgin. Wait, I, I can't tell if you're joking. No, it's true. Yeah, I think she came out. So to speak, as a virgin. Although th- this may be slanderous, so um, ale- alleged virgin maybe until I've read the okay. articles about this. So she said, this is so daft it beggars belief. One wonders what the point of it is all really. As Eliza Doolittle might say, and now I can't do an Eliza Doolittle accent, so I'm going to have to make Chris read it. Coercive control, duck. Not Pygmalion lightly. <laughs> Which isn't even a pun. <laughs> was Pygmalion supposed to be bloody there? Like, what? <laughs> Some critics uh, have pointed out that actually in the play compared to My Fair Lady, which was a musical and a Hollywood musical at that eventually, um, Eliza leaves Henry Higgins at the end. He's like, uh, go run some errands for me. And she's like, ha, 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 I'm going to start a competitive business with yours. And he's like, I'll murder you, but I like you like this. And she's like, Freddie Einsford Hill's at least nice to me. And he's like, he's an idiot. And she's like, bye. So she does, that doesn't change any of the stuff about the, you know, the potential control issues and all of that in there. Um, but it does make me like it more than My Fair Lady. Um, although Ooh, yeah. I do like My Fair Lady, mm. I have to say. I'm not, I mean, I've only seen it once, but I just remember that it was very long and I got bored really quickly. I feel the same way about that that I do about Mary Poppins. See, for me, I, I just saw it as a kid. It was one long makeover movie and I was like, this, this, but yeah, makeover movie, but make it Victorian. I'm in. <laughs> I was a strange child. Um, but to open that up, I wanted to talk about My Fair Lady and Pygmalion. I've never seen Pygmalion. I've read it, but I haven't seen it. Same. I've never watched it. Have you, Chris? Uh, no, I've, I, I haven't read the script either. I only know My Fair Lady. So within, but I think the relationship dynamic is the same. So do we agree that it shows these elements, again, abuse, abusive language, and coercive control? I mean, I guess it does. But, you know, I, I feel somewhat the same way that I do sometimes with my students now, where they'll, we'll talk about a book or something I bring into class, and they'll talk about, you know, like these traumatizing elements and these abusive elements and I realize that they're correct, but because I've been taught in a specific way, my first reaction is, oh, you, what are you, what are you talking about? This is just art. This is just academia. Um, so I'm having the same reaction where I think probably, yes, it is coercive behavior, but 
my first reaction was to kind of scoff, which says a lot about more about me than I think it does about the actual like statement, you know? Well, no, I had the same reaction, which is I think what made me bring this in is I'm like, I'm like, it's like saying like the little mermaid, you know, it's something I saw as a kid being like the little mermaid has, you know, X issues, Y issues. Uh, but I really do think that it is a really fucked up relationship. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, it's, I think it's maybe been about three years since I last saw the movie, but I it's weirdly specific, and now I want to know <laughs> under what circumstances. But <laughs> it was March 2021 when I last. What were they about? I watch it every five years of my life. What can I say? And uh, I know that there are two years to go. Like it's, all Englishmen are required to. I believe so. Instead of military service. Um, but I do remember there being some scenes in it which are what you really think that like something. This is a weird relationship which is being put forward here now i also don't think that that's it's not going to offend anybody i think it's just it's a weird part of the writing and it's it, it, it it's interesting it shows something which is a little bit weird going on because there is this kind of coercive control and she's out of power and stuff like that i can't really in my mind see how that's going to actually upset people it's not really a trigger warning so much as like yeah it, it's a, acknowledging i think that the play has some weird shit in it um <laughs> yeah. but you know to the extent that people are going to be actually upset by it i mean it's still a sort of silly fairy tale almost i don't know i could see that if you'd been in an emotionally controlling relationship it might be upsetting but for me the more salient thing was perhaps for parents who were thinking oh it's a my fair lady inspiration story and you know should i take my kids to see this and maybe it's just this is something to discuss this is something to think about beforehand so that you don't normalize it in the way i think that naf and i both felt was like it was very normalized for us exactly and i saw it in high school i haven't seen it since as well so i wonder if i watched it now what i would think about my fair lady as well um but when i watched it i knew that i knew they were famous i knew audrey hepburn was someone who was famous and so i guess also it felt like oh these famous people putting on these scenes. It didn't feel real at all. And maybe that's also why I'm a little bit surprised, I guess, not at the warning, but at the idea that it could have anything to do with our reality. But again, I haven't watched since I was like maybe 17. Just if you think about the actual dynamics of what's happening there, it's like <laughs> they like two rich men literally make a bet about whether or not they could like polish up this poorer woman who's working, whereas they don't seem to that much, especially the colonel. Uh, I know there's not much colonelling needed in mainland yeah. England at this point. And like take her in, make them live with them, like say horrible things to her, are super mean until she learns to be bourgeois enough for their tastes and then try to marry her. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird story. It's, it's like if this happened in 2003 Brooklyn, this would be a horror film. <laughs> uh, well, hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Have you seen the film uh, She's All That? Well, well, I was actually going to say even even older than that. Um, what about Trading Places, right? Like up until you get to the part where they do a makeover. Well, no, they did a makeover on Eddie Murphy. Like it is pretty much the same premise. Two white men decide to take a black man who is on the streets, has to steal for his, you know, for his living, basically. They put him as part of this social experiment. Granted, there's a Dan Aykroyd um, element, which questionable. Um, right, I'm not sure that makes things better. Yeah, but but I'm just saying, like, I don't think I'd realize that this is a trope of cinema. Um, and now I'm starting to wonder, are all makeover movies instances of coercive control? Right, and just the two white men have been replaced by the bitchy girls at high school or whatever it is. Julie Andrews, the queen of Snowdonia or whatever that place is exactly. supposed to be. But something like Trading Places, for example, is a movie that I've rewatched a number of times. And while I think it's really funny, 
it is also really disturbing to watch, I think because perhaps the social realities realities feel closer to my own reality, right? Whereas when I watched My Fair Lady, it, as you were saying, it's older. She's this beautiful white woman. Uh, everything's so pretty. It, it didn't – it felt so beyond anything that I knew or would ever experience. I didn't think about applying it to my own life, whereas trading places, I was like, oh, this is really fucked up. Well, there used to be a TV show in the UK, like a reality TV show, in which it was it was this sort of makeover show in which like you would take someone from one context and then you'd have all of these people come in and uh, and they'd teach them how to become this uh, this other thing. And then at the end of the week, after having the experts teach them, they'd see if they could pass in that environment. Um, I forget. I, I I can't remember what it was called. Um, but you know, well, I'll, I'll research it and we can put the link in the the show notes. Like, it's, uh... so there's also an there's a horrible. Do you remember? There were a bunch of these shows on in the early 2000s in America on channels like TLC, which is like the Learning Channel. You've got to be fucking kidding me! You turned into something else. <laughs> But uh, John Ronson writes about one of them in one of his books, where this woman who, uh, I I think she may have had uh, some kind of unusual fa- facial features and all of this, and had never really worried about it. But like, you know, and just gone on with her life. And her family had proposed her for this show, and then she got selected for it, mm-hmm. this makeover show, and so she goes on it and. The family is like prompted by the producers to be like, oh, like I'm so humiliated when I go out with her. And they're like, no, that's not the case. But like after a while, just hours and hours of this, they say like some kind of hurtful things. And so like she's shown this, you know, to like, like, will you accept the makeover? Your family's horrified to like, you know, see you, you know, looking so horrible. And then they were like, the producers come in and they're like, oh, this episode's actually been canceled. Um, you like we we were preempted by something, so you can go home now. And she's like, "Wait, I don't get the makeover then." <laughs> the 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 point of that being, um, that a lot of these aren't as lighthearted as I mean, a lot of them are lighthearted well, and but like have darker implications. That's it, and I think with My Fair Lady, and actually to a certain extent with uh, Training Places, if I'm being honest, we're also looking at someone who's being in big air quotes made over, who's objectively gorgeous. Right, like that's why we can be suspended in the fantasy. No one's looking. Oh, they're glad. Like wipe that dirt off her that's face. It. Exactly. Like this genre, this <laughs> this storytelling type is it works and it can even be considered fantasy because my God, like you know who wouldn't want to look like Eddie Murphy on his good day, like on their bad day, frankly, like who wouldn't want to look like Audrey Hepburn? And you're right that in a weird way, with reality TV, it is <laughs> it is wow. I can't believe I'm saying this. It's one of the most realistic windows onto. But what if this was a normal person and we were doing this exact same fucking thing, but we made it episodic and then we just let you decide how you felt about it? Like that becomes a lot darker and a lot more just fucked up, right? And a lot, and also like really turns a mirror onto us and who um, and what we value, right? And like what we wh- who we want to th- who we think we want to become. Absolutely. And so when I saw this again, like I as well thought it was kind of a joke at first. Um, but the the thing is that it it isn't always as lighthearted as, as it seems. And I think it's worth pointing out to people that there are some really strange dynamics that maybe shouldn't be normalized, even in something that is as much of a fantasy as this is. Yeah. All right. I, okay. As a final as a final point, though, I feel. There's a degree to which this is, I, I, I think it, it, it sort of, it's the sort of thing which this warning 
I do sometimes wonder what the purpose of a warning like this serves. And really, I feel maybe it's about getting publicity for the show because they know that the right wing press is going to leap on it and people are going to have discussions about it like this. And is it really that important to do a trigger warning over Pygmalion or My Fair Lady? You know, in comparison to the amount that it will get this traction in the wider press and create this thing and it will effectively end up getting more people coming to the show, which I think is a good thing because I think more people should go and see theatre. That's it. If uh, if we end up sending more people to the Old Vic this week, uh, Brits, you are our second biggest audience. uh, And and I just want to make a final and a half point, which is that um, I also think that the the way that the trigger warning is phrased seems to be for a much younger audience, which might not be going to see this play anyway. And then for an audience that probably would go see the play, it seems designed to infuriate and go, oh, oh my God, these snowflakes. It just doesn't seem to be um, either starting conversations that are really important that would actually lead to perhaps, uh, well, obviously, and and that's, and we're changing it. Um, We're changing the name. It's now the most important podcast you ever listened to. It's obligatory. It's like that YouTube album, which is going to be downloaded onto your phone. You're welcome. Um, But yeah, it just doesn't seem to be actually doing anything in terms of either starting conversations or actually leading to anything constructive. It just seems to be fury, no matter what age group you are, no matter if you're going to see this play or not, no matter if you're going to do the research or not. And I do think that it's not that trigger warnings themselves are ineffective. It's that the way I think we deploy them is a bit ineffective. And now it's time for the love story. So today we're going to be talking about Josephine Baker, but before we begin, I'd love to hear more about what the two of you already know about her. I knew very little uh, until I recently read a Vanity Fair article about how she had uh, lived in France. I, I, I knew that already, but like adopted a bunch of children, her complicated relationship with nationalities. Like the other stuff that I know about her is really just as references within other works. How about you, Chris? Um, Yeah, likewise. I mean, before this week, um, almost nothing at all. I mean, obviously, I knew the like iconic image of her in the banana skirt and um, knew that she was a dancer here. On top of that, there's a um, there's a boulangerie in. I think it's the fifth called Josephine Bakery, which uh, always made me smile. That. Um, I will marry that bakery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the Mary Fuck Kill, wait oh, for it. Oh. Um, I wanted to ask you because I, uh, similar to the both of you, I have lots of images of Josephine Baker or what I perceive to be images of Josephine Baker. And she is someone who has been such a, a subject of visual fascination, mm-hmm. starting from uh, when she first came to Paris in her career. But to this day, um, as of now, for example, there are two biopics of Josephine Baker in um, perhaps not in production, but kind of in thought. One of them will be hopefully starring Janelle Monet. The other one will be starring Ruth Negga. Oh my God, I want to, I want to see them both exactly. immediately. <laughs> but it's really interesting to me, and not just to me, but to a lot of the writers that I've kind of been like looking to this week, as to how Josephine Baker has been such a fascinating topic of homage, um, because her and and I really will probably focus on her body because her body has was her was her kind of moneymaker, but also has been kind of the site of uh, visibility and invisibility. So before we get into that, 
Um, brief biographical details. It's not brief. There's actually a lot about Josephine Baker. I'm so sorry. Like, actually, everyone get ready. There's so fucking much. Like, this is me kind of try- really trying to streamline it, and it's fascinating. Um, so Josephine Baker was born in St. Louis in on June 3rd, 1906. I was joking with Rachel. Oh, Earl- is a June Gemini. Exactly. I was joking with Rachel earlier that, like, my area of expertise in this podcast is uh, black people Gemini's. Like, <laughs> that's that's what I fucking do. So as, as we were saying, Josephine Baker is someone that you have definitely seen but I want to kind of give a little bit of a picture of her childhood. So it's also really hard to find biographical details of Josephine Baker because true to my Gemini heart, she was a profound pathological liar about her own biography, a self-mythologizer. Genuinely, these were the days when you could just make it up. And honestly, if I could have, if I knew that people weren't just immediately Googling, like, I'm not saying I would have, but I would have. Oh, please. Um, absolutely. I'm curious as to what you'd make up. What would be the first thing? Uh, princess. <laughs> Second yeah. detail, princess. Um, a quote from Josephine Baker, I don't lie. I improve on life. She's just like, oh, darn. <laughs> I, really, I can't tell you how much I love that quote. Um, so born in St. Louis and... It's important to note that as a child, she grew up extremely poor, but also was a witness to the race riots of 1917 in St. Louis. Oh, wow. And so these were hundreds of black people were killed, right? And this was like as a child, um, she never really knew who her biological father was. She had multiple siblings. Um, and her really her modus operandi was really like, I have got to get the fuck out of here. And we'll see with Josephine Baker that she had a very complicated relationship and a conflicted relationship with America, but also with Black Americans. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into that a little bit later. So she, uh, as I said, was a witness to the race riots, um, mobs beating up her community, members of her neighbor, you know, her neighborhood. Um, So really had kind of, unfortunately, like an up-close view of the literal damage that racist hate causes. And we'll get into that a little bit later. It obviously affected her. It's also to point out that this is just 50 years after the Civil War, you know, in the South. This is not like you, I think a lot of people, especially non-Americans, will be like, growing up in St. Louis sounds amazing. That is the South 50 years after the Civil War. Exactly. And I want to reiterate, she was born in 1906, right? We, I, I think also sometimes we forget not, not, I don't want to say like not how old Josephine Baker is, but because she's so present in our pop culture vocabulary right now, I think we forget that she's actually not as recent as we believe, but she's quite alive to our cultural imagination. And we'll get into that a little bit later, why that might be. Yeah, I do want to get into that because I think there's a real link to Miles Davis Absolutely. there too, in Absolutely. terms of what's cool. Exactly. And also in terms of how much they did in you know, relatively brief lives, you know. Um, uh, Josephine Baker uh, died in 1975 in Paris. That's not very long and did a ton up until then. So uh, when she was a teenager, uh, when she was 13 years old, she married her first husband. And to me, Josephine Baker marrying at such a young age, I should also say actually that um, Josephine Baker was born Frida Josephine McDonald. We'll get into how she got Josephine and Baker. Well, Josephine obviously, but Baker. Um, to me, being married at 13, a black girl in St. Louis at this time, it's I need to get the fuck out of here, right? Like I need to have a mode of escape. And the only mode of escape I can think of is a man because that's those are the options presented to me. They divorced very quickly. She married her second husband at the age of 15 wow. and she would retain his last name wow. Baker. Yeah. To, again, this is a lot of me kind of doing hypothesizing, kind of uh, connecting the dots. I don't say this as a criticism 
at all. I believe that there is a lot of reason why self-mythologizing, whatever we might call, you know, lying, big air quotes, prevarication, especially amongst members of marginalized communities, that's a kind of way of like regaining agency, right? Regaining kind of the, the reins of your own story. But Josephine Baker absolutely did do that. And so this is so this is me a lot of uh, a lot of analysis between the lines, but I just see someone who's like I I have to get out, I have got to like use these people, use these men as my kind of like jumping off points. In the meantime, she's a dancer, she's a singer in chorus lines, and something I thought was at thirteen, fourteen, yeah, absolutely, Jesus, yeah, she left school at the age of twelve, and something I thought was really interesting was that at the so she eventually gets a big role in a show um, where she's on the chorus line and she's on the end of the chorus line and she wants to make sure that she's not overshadowed. And that's when she starts to implement a lot of like comic relief and a kind of lot of comic styling. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about this later on. I but understand I, it. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I watched a movie of hers last night from 1945 called La Fosse Alerte. In English, it's called The French Way. <laughs> And of course it is. And it's um, it's really because it's like vague enough to be sexy. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it's really interesting to see Josephine Baker both play sexy, but also she does do a lot of comedic styling with her face, with her arms, with her shoulders. She's a comedian, but also trying to make you feel like, but you want to fuck me. And that's a weird line to try to show, right, as a person. But also imagine being a black woman whose body becomes a source and a site of fascination for her whole life, basically. And so she first arrives in Paris, the subject of her podcast, in 1925. She comes with a uh, white socialite producer named Caroline Regan. And the cast of La Croix Negre, this was Caroline Regan's attempt to bring, quote-unquote, authentic Black American culture to Europe. Thoughts? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> um, great. Love Car- thoughts. Caroline Regan's a man? Oh, it's a woman. A woman's doing this to other women? Well, it's funny though. I mean, like you, you could you could talk about like <laughs> when you were saying like the this uh, film, which was named in English the French Way. Um, I think that it's all just marketing and capitalism, and like that's probably what sold in Paris at the time is somebody saying kind of like, you know, authentic black culture um, was something that people would like pay to go and see, I guess. Well, and jazz is getting big around this time. It's the jazz age. But I'm also thinking, you know, this uh, Carolyn Regan to me, let me take a wild swing here. She sounds like a white lady. <laughs> oh, Carolyn Regan. And my, yeah, the, no kidding. Mm-hmm. The... <laughs> The thing to me is that she wants to produce and she's thinking, who can I exploit still? Who, like, so uh, probably not other white women, Mm -hmm. you know, not black men, certainly not white men. And so she goes to black women and it's very upsetting well I, I you can't i mean that's making a lot of assumptions and i i like I, I don't know who she was or whether she was necessarily exploiting people probably in her mind it wasn't exploitation but i i i don't know um anything about her but like but i also think at the time in the 1920s we uh i don't know i don't think the word exploitation would be used for this this yeah. is a job yeah right this was employment josephine baker was 19 yeah. when she came to paris in 1925 and in her own words uh, quote, I fell asleep with the idea of conquering Paris. I definitely wanted to seduce the whole capital. <laughs> um, and much like Miles Davis, much like many other um, Black American writers and artists we'll talk about, this was James Baldwin. <laughs> Absolutely. And and more, even you know, even more than James Baldwin, Josephine Baker loved Paris. 
and I really mean loved pairs. And we'll get into that the love story because I have a well, I, I, I have a big she, question for the both of you. I heard that she loved two things. Mm-hmm. Her country. Uh-huh. And Ferris. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she is part of this La Revue Negre. It opens on October 2nd, 1925. Sorry, just, uh, just a quick sidebar. I think a lot of my earlier commentary was also based on that title. Um, about Carolyn Regan, and I am bringing a 21st century of course, ethos to this evaluation. So that may not have been as nuanced as the situation was. At yeah. the time, in English and in French, the word Negro, the word Negress, these were not pejorative terms, yeah. right? Like these were just words that you use to describe people of, of darker skin. And also I think it's interesting to note that even though the source I read talked about a Black American culture being brought to Europe – uh, I'll talk a little bit about this right now. Uh, Josephine Baker's routine was actually in French called Adult Sauvage, where she was almost entirely nude. She was wearing her famous banana skirt. It was 30 minutes long. She did kind of like a comic madcap Charleston. So it's also a time when Africa yeah. writ large and African-American were being conflated entirely, right? Wow. At yeah. this point, black bodies were just Adult Sauvage. These were primitive people. These were just kind of like entertainment. And I want to let you know that also in the audience of this first show were people like Gertrude Stein, my erstwhile lover. Uh, friend of the pod. And um, and honestly, like um, Rachel's – one of Rachel's erstwhile rival, rivals uh, or lovers rather, uh, Maurice Chevalier. Uh, they can be both. They can be both. Um, sorry, sorry, but also just the banana skirt. To be clear, this is entirely a Western invention. This is not – Nobody is making skirts out of bananas. Oh, right. Sorry, actually, and I should say, banana skirt came later. This was actually the first dance sauvage where she was wearing a feathered loincloth. Um, did, sorry, did you? I, like, this is a really, I, I, I found this really interesting when I was watching a, a documentary about her earlier today. But the thing about um, people, I think it was maybe male performers, like male black performers in the US at that time. Um, because there was a color bar of kind of like n- people not being allowed to perform, um, that a lot of them literally performed in blackface, yep. so, which was, I mean, kind of crazy oh, to yes. me. So yes. the only way that you could perform on stage if you were a black man was by dressing up as a black man so that people couldn't see the actual color of your skin. <laughs> so in blackface was fine, but your blackface was yeah. not fine? Because the racial politics of this or the kind of the Jeez. racial signaling, I'm really glad you brought this up, Chris, like it was one of those things where either you were passing as white or you were black, black, black. Being light-skinned at this time did not give you as many opportunities as you would think, right? Like it's not like now we talk about colorism, obviously being light-skinned, if you're a person of color, really does give you a certain amount of like privileges, right? But at the time, it's either white or black. Yeah. You either lean into the black or you lean into the white. And that's what you've got. Yeah. And Josephine Baker, given her skin color, leaned into the black. Yeah. Um, I want to read a little bit of a review. Um, so this first performance from Andre Levinson, who is perhaps the foremost ballet critic of the day. Big quotes here. It was as though the jazz, catching on the wing, the vibrations of this body... I really want to focus on this This body, body, was interpreting word by word its fantastic monologue. We don't have other pronouns here, right? It's all it's so far. The gyrations of the cynical yet merry mountebank. Interesting. The good-natured grin of her large mouth. Jesus. Large mouth? Sorry, good-natured grin as well. Suddenly give way to visions from which good humor is entirely absent. In the short pas de deux of the savages... 
<laughs> which came as the finale of the Revue Negre, there was a wild splendor and magnificent animality. Sorry, I'm just imagining him as Fraser with the African. Yeah, exactly. As exactly. Prince Harry says, this is a rich text, the, the African masks, yeah. in quotes, in his apartment. Yeah. Uh, what the actual fuck? And so from the beginning of her career, and Josephine Baker should be said, as an artist was not nearly as celebrated as America in America as she was in Europe. And there's a weird mix in Josephine Baker's biography where she's both a brutal realist, we'll get into that a little bit later, but also sometimes this strangely corny romantic, right? And like, where's the nexus? Gemini! <laughs> and so at the time, the appeal of La Josephine in Europe was epic. Um, our, you know, controversial favorite Ernest Hemingway said, the most sensational woman anyone ever saw. <laughs> E.E. E. Cummings said, to be fair, Ernest Hemingway never saw a woman he didn't want to fuck. <laughs> he was obsessed. E.E. E. Cummings, beyond time in the sense that emotion is beyond arithmetic. Of course he did. Of course he did. Josephine Baker's. <laughs> it's funny because I really have to compute what E.E. E. Cummings said, whereas Hemingway, that was just, that's the pull quote. I'm sorry, Cummings. You know, Hemingway gets right in there. E.E. E. Cummings is all about the foreplay. <laughs> It's not going to go on the dust jacket. <laughs> One of the things I love, though, about um, Josephine Baker is that men were falling all over her. Her love affairs were so epic. Um, and one of my favorite interviews with her is in 1933, where she's talking about a certain notable Spanish painter. And she's like, you know, um, Pinazaro or whatever his name is, <laughs> the guy everyone talks about. Like, to her, men were really a stepping stone. And I say this in the most respectful way possible. Like, this is someone who knows what the fuck is up. She's not like... Love this. Oh, his blue period? What the fuck is that? <laughs> I'm not interested. I love this Becky Sharp aspect of her that is very much more than I ever liked Becky Sharp, which is just like, okay, like it's almost like job hopping, you know, the way that she's talking about it. I'm upset. Yes, I love this. And I'm I'm here for it. I love this. Um, I'm looking, I'm trying to find right now, um, there's a wonderful anecdote that I want to kind of bring up when it comes to... The, let's say like the job aspect, the political aspect of Josephine Baker's affairs with men, although she was also bisexual. And it's interesting to me also that her love affairs with men have been super publicized. Women, a lot of them are like, mm, allegedly. <laughs> I heard Frida Kahlo was uh, in there. How much would you pay for those sex tapes, you guys? <laughs> it's Josephine Baker and Colette. Josephine Baker and Frida Kahlo. So I want to give you a sense of kind of like what Josephine Baker's body was worth in terms of money, in terms of like financial assets, right? So the crown prince of Sweden, Gustav Adolf, was obsessed with her. I'm taking this from The Hungry Heart, which is written in part by one of her adopted children. We'll get into them. This is a quote from there. After seeing her perform, the crown prince invited Josephine to the palace and led her through a secret door into a room with a four-poster bed covered in precious furs. She lay down naked, and the prince summoned a servant who came in with a silver tray heaped with jewels, and one by one, the prince covered Josephine's body with diamonds, emeralds, rubies. We just need a minute. <laughs> exactly. Really set with that. Sit with that. And the, not 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 my fetish. And, and allegedly, Baker also would happily sleep with someone of influence as long as he paid fifty thousand Belgian francs or a piece of valuable jewelry. 
she knew that what she was able to gain was through her body. It was not that she thought that she was only her body. It was not a matter, I think, of lack of confidence or lack of ability or lack of belief in herself, right? I mean, this is a woman who was one of the first black women ever to be in a major motion picture in any country. She knew what she could do. But she also was like, I'm from fucking St. Louis, where a few years ago, they were slaughtering us on the streets. I'm not going back. I'm not going fucking back to that. You give me your emeralds, you give me your rubies. Something I found really touching and really moved me was that after all these reviews about her body, about her sexuality, the thing that fascinated Josephine Baker and made her so happy was that – so after this first big show, they transformed the uh, – sorry, the theater into this massive restaurant. Mm. And it was the first time she ate at the same table as white people. And she was astonished. Even in Paris. Yep. It was her first time in Paris, to be fair. Oh, sorry. I missed that. But but for her – that was extraordinary, right? That she was be giving – she could sit at the same table. And um, there are kind of reverberations of Miles Davis, right, with Julia Greco and, like, Amazing. being at a restaurant in the U.S. and having – not having that same experience. Yeah. And actually, I will say that also the racism of even the the favorable reviews of Josephine Baker continue. Um, in 1930, for The New Yorker, Janet Flanner would write, quote, her caramel-colored body, which overnight became a legend in Europe, is still magnificent. In 1930, she's so young. It's still magnificent, <laughs> as if she's like 95. She was born in 1907, so she would have been... 23. <laughs> this is around the same point F. F- Scott Fitzgerald writes about um, a faded but still beautiful woman right. of 27. <laughs> <laughs> this is... I am not happy in the 20s. To be fair, they lived hard back then. <laughs> they did. They No sunscreen. No sunscreen. None at all. Um but uh, so according, uh, according to Janet Flanner, still related to her body, but it has become thinned, trained. I want to focus your word, like your attention on these words, almost civilized. A Paris critic announced around the same time of the 1930s show, quote, she left us a negresse, droll and primitive. She comes back a great artist. This was better than what she was getting in the U.S., and I, I, you know what? Also, I want to emphasize that, yes, it's a different time and blah, blah. And you were saying earlier, Rachel, like, you know, I'm um, kind of applying a contemporary lens here. Yes, and yeah. this is not that far. This is not even 100 years ago. And so, so I mean, this that, is 20, 20, less than 20 years before my parents were born. There we go. You know, like, so it's that it's that balance. I think it's really hard to maintain when it comes to kind of critiquing history, critiquing historical texts, and also critiquing people not even critiquing, but kind of observing people of color of the past, having that balance between it was a different time, how much do we accept with it was a different time, right? Like how much do we, that can be a progressive thing. It can be like, oh, how far have we come? And also, my God, what were the depths that we were at less than 100 years ago? And I do think this is going to be so pretentious that we may need to cut it. But the idea of of being in Paris, I do think that you start to see time differently than you do in America, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at least. Like being in Europe, it's you start to think 100 years, not that long. That's my grandparents were alive then. You know, my grandparents were alive when this was happening. Exactly. And I knew my grandparents. You know, it's it's the, the perspective is off. And a last uh, detail about uh, Baker's kind of like Paris life was that she had – she loved animals and she had a pet cheetah named Chiquita who she would often walk on the Champs-Élysées. And one of the kind of fun parts of her show – That is so fucking hot. (laughs) Was that her cheetah, Chiquita, would be on the stage with her when she was dancing. And sometimes Chiquita would just get nervous and would jump into the orchestra pit (laughs) and have a good reign. Good job, Chiquita. Keep being – what did you say, leopard? Uh, cheetah. Um, uh, what I also love with this cheetah is that I, I kind of love that 
Josephine was so aware that she was a heat spot in so many ways yeah. and was like, I guess I'll just walk a cheetah around with me. Like, she was really aware of the spectacle of who she was and of, of like, again, her what her body presented and, like, leaned into that in many ways. Well, and I know that she's one of the only black American celebrities in Europe at this time. Yes. But is she one of the only black celebrities, period, in Europe at this time. I don't know what the scene was like back then. In terms of singing and dancing, yes, absolutely. She was one of the very... Sure. Yeah, yeah. she was really the topmost one. There's actually like a really... Um, a sad article where – or a sad uh, note where Henry Louis Gates Jr. was sent to Paris in the 1970s to interview Josephine Baker and um, James Baldwin. And Times Magazine, who sent him, um, told him uh, – Time Magazine, rather, said, don't don't worry about it. They're passe. <laughs> that article was never published. Amazing. This isn't historically important or anything. And this was a time when it was like they were established. They had their own houses. You know, Gates Jr. was – at their chateaus, eating dinner with them, drinking. Imagine that article. The Time magazine was like, um, no, I mean, sorry. The same era. Irrelevant. <laughs> BBC is like, here is your 15-hour documentary on Nancy Mitford's sister. <laughs> and Josephine James, again, irrelevant is what they said. So I, I just want to go back, though, a little bit to the New Yorker article mm-hmm. and this idea of times changing and like, attitudes changing and stuff like that. And I think there's an important thing to consider about the the language which is being used in this context, just to unpick it a little bit. And so if you consider sort of like what it meant, I suppose, and I'm riffing off a lot of stuff which I don't know that much about, so I might be wrong, but um, this idea of blackness in the US, I can imagine having this sort of like um, more like the cultural context around it might have been like this sort of less civilized, more kind of, um, you know, raw expression of emotion sort of thing. And that, and that was what was expected, I suppose, of black dancers in the U S at that time and what they could do. And so in terms of kind of then her going to Europe and then being able to express herself in a, in a different way because she wasn't being, you know, funneled into um, the expectations of what a black dancer was there. And so when they talk about her in that New Yorker article becoming sort of somehow more civilized, in some ways that's more, you know, it, it does literally mean kind of just more European, but that's sort of about, it, it it's also talking about i suppose the the potential of what you could be at that time in one context or the other context exactly. if that because makes sense that does make sense and i i think it's important to note that one of the key differences was that in europe and actually i should stop saying europe because in germany in austria mm. uh, wasn't great at that time <laughs> wait wait germany in the 1930s <laughs> Right, let's say it was a mixed bag. There we go. Thank you. Please, please. <laughs> but in those countries at that time, either she was banned from performing or she would perform for a few shows and she would leave, right? So France was really – there's a reason why she loved France and Paris so much. But she was also allowed to be a lead performer. Whereas in the U.S., if she was going to be allowed to perform on stage with white dancers, it was really on the sidelines. And actually, when she went back to the U.S. as a star in Europe, one of the things that was so wounding for her was that her white backup dancers were not allowed to touch her. And she was not allowed to touch them. So it's it's just 
in some ways, and I it's painful to say, but the fucked up exoticism of French reviewers was far and away better than the revulsion of of American critics if they were even going to review her shows, right? Like in the U.S., Josephine Baker was a cockroach, a dirty, diseased cockroach. In France, she was a source of fascination. Either way, she's an other. But if you're going to be othered, don't you want to go with the place where you get emeralds and rubies and diamonds? Yeah, and it's like, and maybe they compare your skin color to edible food. Exactly. But at the same time, at least it's something they want to eat. Yep. And you're making money. And it's like that. Yeah. You're making money. You can support your family back home. And actually, uh, sidebar. Oh, so she was supporting her. Yes, she was. And also sidebar, um, the movie I mentioned earlier from the 1940s, uh, Fausse Alerte, it's interesting because, so she lives in this apartment building. She owns this nightclub. But Josephine Baker is obviously supposed to be black in the movie. Yeah. But she owns her own apartment. She, like, she has her own apartment. She has white servants, which to me was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Unbelievable. She has a white time. secretary. No one comments on the fact that she's black. What studio is this? Oh, good question. I don't know. I'll have to look it up. That would be really interesting to know because I know that there were black studios that were consistently underfunded. Uh, but I can't imagine her working for them because of the money issue. So even though she's the avowed star of the show, of this movie, she does not get to have a love story. Her kind of partner is this white man who I think is very clearly coded to be a gay man. And he's her uh, choreographer. He's her artistic advisor, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all this asexual Exactly. But at the same time, I kept being aware of the fact that his hands are all over her. He is touching her. And in the 1940s, for a black woman to be touched by a white man and to not have it be like immediately a a, a, you know, I I guess like a court case, never mind like a lynching, that's huge. I am not even at the half of it, right? Because uh, along with her artistic uh, career, she was also a spy during World War II for France. Um, and for the resistance. For the resistance. <laughs> She's not for the baddies. <laughs> <laughs> she was a spy for the Nazis. Twist. <laughs> no, we love you, Josephine. Um, she spent seven years fighting the Nazis. Um, she was recruited by secret agent Jacques Abte of the French Military Intelligence Service. Listen, they they were lovers as well. They were both married. It's just not a big deal. I want that as a film. It sounds like I want it as a porn film. But no, I want the, like, he's approaching her after and she's just like, my makeup is all messed up. And like, my bananas, bananas smell so bad after a few wow. hours under the lights. And he's like, would you like to work for the, I can't do accents. He's, he's Transylvanian now. Would you like to work for the resistance? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, excuse me. <laughs> Tell me more. Um, but her visibility and her invisibility are at play in her spy them in really interesting ways. So on the one hand, so she would go to embassy parties. Um, she would travel constantly in Europe. She was still performing. She was still, you know, making money. And it was really, I mean, it's the kind of stuff that you would expect only from Hollywood movies, right? Like Invisible Ink written secret messages on her um, music notes. She would go to these parties and she would write on her arms and on her hands, like all the things that she heard. And at some point, Abte, uh, you know, expressed his worry, thinking like, you know, you're in danger. Also, you're a Gemini. Can you keep a secret? That's what Abdi said. How did you know that? (laughs) (laughs) And Josephine apparently told him when he expressed this worry, nobody would think I'm a spy. And I think there's... I've always thought I would be a great spy for that reason, but it's because I tell secrets to everybody. (laughs) And that's why nobody would think I was a spy. So it's a a different situation. I need to be trained, but I could... I'm I'm good at 50% of it, is the thing. You'd be amazing. Thank you so much. Um, But I think that 
Josephine was kind of pointing to the fact that, like, no one's looking at me like this silly black woman. And I, I, I say silly in the kind of her, like, public perception. You know, no one's looking at me for that way. Mm. And the other thing about it was that no one really body searched her. So she would have – often she'd have notes on her body, like, sewn into her clothing. And I um, read a review of a biography of her which said her stardom was her cloak. So her very visibility, her very, like, celebrity lent her a kind of invisibility, which I think was also aided by the fact that, again, she was a black woman. Like, this idea that, like, what are you going to do? What threat do you really – pose here it's not an exact comparison because she's a white woman and it's several decades later but i think it's like a marilyn monroe can you imagine you know trying to body search her and it's like you wouldn't like you'd stay far away from certain parts just by virtue of the over sexualized public image without being like i'm like to, to be like i'm not a creep I'm not going to skim your nipples. I'm not going right, to, right, right, right. you know how you skim a nipple. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> skim some milk. <laughs> what were you doing? I was just out skimming some nipples. Just out of curiosity, is she crossing enemy lines when she's doing this? So, I mean, um, by enemy lines, do you, I mean, she's not performing in Nazi Germany, I assume, but maybe Vichy France. Yeah. Like She is traveling throughout Europe, throughout Africa, in France, in Vichy France, but no, not in, and that was actually a pretty oh, firm line. Yep. Yep, that was one of the reasons why actually she was chosen, was that she could travel freely within Europe and also within Africa. Are there uh, reviews of her work in Africa? I couldn't find any. I was really curious. So interested. Yeah. She- it's so it, but it's mainly um, it's it's French colonies and Vichy yes. France that she's really getting all this information from. Exactly, okay. yeah. because that's the place where she can perform. Right. Okay. Um, she's never she was never caught. Um, she came close a few times, but. Right. Like she never she was always kind of like under the auspices, under the goodwill of France, wherever she went. Do you know what annoys me so much is that I know that the biopics are going to try to do this like whole life thing. Mm -hmm. And it's that people's lives don't make great stories for the most part, 99.9 percent of the time. Mm -hmm. And it's like you should focus just in on these years and like this. And I know none of them will. You know, it's like it will be 15 minutes out of. I really hope they will because it's important. Right. Like and your point about Marilyn Monroe. I'm so glad you said that because I think. Not only in terms of like, as you were saying, kind of the fame, the attention paid to so many parts of part. And I say that word deliberately parts in terms of body, in terms of what gets visualized, in terms of what gets kind of made celebrity, but also in terms of how modern celebrities are obsessed with dressing up like Marilyn Monroe and Josephine Baker. Yeah. They both function as kind of like fun dress up. Yeah. Because they have distinctive looks and because also their bodies were such a huge part of what made them famous and what made them iconic. Even well, and a st- body is something that you can never replicate exactly. unless you're Dolly the Sheep. Exactly. <laughs> we know that from social studies circa early 2000s. Dolly the Sheep. <laughs> Haven't thought about her in a while, have you? <laughs> First shout out on the pod, you know. We finally fucking got here. <laughs> Welcome to Rachel's Brain. It's just random associations. <laughs> I have a few last points before we get to, like, the questions because – and this is really because Josephine Baker is so fascinating. There's so many aspects of her life. Um, I read – I listened to a podcast, rather, where a, biography sa- a biographer said, oh, you know, Josephine Baker is kind of like the Madonna of – and I immediately shut it off. I was like, no, no, no. Madonna might be the Josephine Baker of, but do, yes. not, do not fucking talk to me. Don't talk to me about an Italian-American woman in the 1980s. <laughs> Come on. But, yeah. Right now. 
Um, but she was, I, I understand, she had comeback upon comeback upon comeback. So briefly, um, she was a major civil rights activist. Actually, Coretta Scott King asked her to be the symbolic leader of the civil rights movement. She's one of the only black women, if not the only black woman, to speak at the March on Washington with Martin Luther King. Oh, whoa. Mm-hmm. She refused to perform in segregated clubs. She and Grace Kelly, I thought of this, with, I thought of you, Rachel. Yes, Grace Kelly gave her an apartment. Exactly. And became friends because Grace Kelly walked out with her at the store club. Yeah, I know. Um, so I, yeah, so but I will say that like Josephine Baker was terrible, like in some ways was terrible in adapting to go back to America, right? She would often speak French to Black Americans in America. <laughs> would often wear evening gowns, uh, haute couture in like poverty stricken St. Louis. Had a lot of difficulty kind of adjusting to. I, I, well, she's like what we all fear of becoming. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, if there were no internet, no stand-up comedy, like none of the stuff that we'd seen that was like, it's terrible to be pretentious, and you were just like, I'm going home, Yeah, would you not want to wear an – like, I feel like that's my natural urge that I'm like – I'm fighting it. And like my situation is not Josephine Baker. <laughs> exactly. And this is also a time when like black American identity is we talk a lot about now about communities, about identities not being monolithic. But black American identity in some ways had to be monolithic because it was so endangered, right? Like you had to have strong cultural forces there. It was literally people fighting for survival. Exactly. So Josephine Baker comes in and she really believes in the cause and fights for it, but she fights for it in her own way. And have either of you ever heard her voice? Being interviewed? Oh, yeah. It is delightful. It is to us, right? But imagine... She doesn't sound like she comes from St. Louis. That's it. So imagine... <laughs> that's true. Imagine 1950s... <laughs> think of that, yeah. 1960s, going back to the U.S. and speaking like that. Yes, well, 64 years old. And sometimes I feel it and sometimes I don't. Well, I think it's like that with all people that are a certain age, you feel it. If you're unhappy or if you have troubles, and a lot of people in the world have troubles almost every day, mm. and sometimes they're unhappy about them, of course you feel age. If you don't feel age, you just feel something is very disappointing. But you're unchangeable, absolutely unchangeable. That's what you say. But anything, I know that I'm, well, I, perhaps I've, I've become so changed that, that I, I can't be come and change it worse. I, I'm, I'm, I'm at the tops perhaps now, noticing. So, oh, you know, let me talk about my coming back here. Would you like to? Yes, hear? I would like to. Um, she so Miki Sawada, who's a Japanese social worker, was one of her friends. She wrote to her in a letter. Josephine did. Uh, quote: You mentioned in your letter you were trying to love America. Darling, forget it. Um, there are so many quotable items from Josephine That's that we don't have to. Right. I'm obsessed. And the last big biographical thing is both of you mentioned this earlier, the Rainbow Tribe. Um, <laughs> Josephine decided, so 1950s, this is like height of one of her big popularity spurts. Um, she's rich, she's famous, she's gorgeous, publicly gorgeous. And she, uh, for various health reasons, Josephine was not able to have her own biological children, but she always loved kids. And she decided that she was going to use kids to kind of build a racial utopia. Um, Which, this is what we now call pulling a Mia Farrow. (laughs) Or Angelina Jolie, who actually has spoken about how Josephine Baker was an influence for her. Yeah, she's spoken about that. Again, Josephine Baker's homages are various. It is fascinating. Josephine has been, in many ways, a guiding light, a kind of like model to follow. Even in her, I will say this right now, the Rainbow Tribe for me is like hella problematic. So so can we explain the Rainbow Tribe a little bit more? Yes. So her goal was to adopt children from all the major ethnic groups in the world. Really sit with that. All the major ethnic groups in the world. She wanted to bring them together in a castle that she owned. And raise them as a family to prove that people from different backgrounds could live together in harmony. 
It's, it's like communism where you're just like, it's such a nice idea. How are you going to do it? Except with children. The, she, yeah, no, I'm not. I, I didn't mean like, how are you going to do it? And that like people from different ethnicities can't but get along. I, but I think that's an important point, right? That like already with adults, it's kind of a far-fetched idea in terms of like racial, like whatever, any kind of harmony. And then you bring kids in. Yeah, but it's also just like you're a single parent. Mm-hmm. You're going to be paying other people to mostly raise them. We're going to get into that. Mm-hmm. So she adopts 12 children. And, of course, it's really difficult to adopt 12 kids from whatever you decide are the major ethnic groups. Also, France is really weird on adoption, and it makes it hard to adopt. At the time, no. At the time, oh, well, really? Oh, at the time, she's rich. And also, there are a lot of war orphans. Exactly, which she takes advantage of. Um, <laughs> Ooh, she I, takes advantage of the war orphan. Two of her adoptees are from massacres in Algeria. Oh, no, no. She really, to make a point, she goes far and beyond, right? To the point also where she, because she can't find um, really big air quotes, authentic children from these backgrounds, she manufactures identities for them. So, for example, one of the children who's not Jewish, she creates a Jewish identity for them. She ends up adopting two children from Japan. But, of course, that's two kids from Japan. So she tells one of them that they're actually Korean. And he only finds out when he's in his 20s. And just to clarify really quickly, first of all, like, uh, Jewish identity is very, very dependent on the mother's heritage. So the idea of this is a matrilineal, like, a line, that's very important. Uh, Japan and Korea, historically, lots of history there that uh, you can't just skim over as I'm... Historically, there's always a lot of history. Um, There's so much history. I believe Japan colonized Korea. So she brings them all to her Chateau de Milonde, which is a 15th century castle in the French countryside. And tourists come. It's a tourist attraction. We do automatically, as Americans, get those when we move here. Oh, yeah. We all have one. Oh, do we not? Oh, not Chris. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Brexit really He's he's English. They they, they don't like that. They They took it away. Um, (laughs) I am in, uh, you know, a huge amount of legal uh, paperwork with the French government (laughs) to get my chateau back. That is my 15th century chateau. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So at the time, transracial adoptions were rare, if non-existent. And there are so many fucking weird photographs of a lot of white people peering through gates as the children play. As the children talk, they were a tourist fascination, right? Like there was a club on the grounds. There were there were actual amusement park rides. And um, the idea – and actually Josephine really saw them as global ambassadors. She hired tutors to teach them dozens of languages each. They were also supposed to learn trades based on where they were supposed to have come from. Well, really were- so, so basically she was – Doing it's a small world after all. That's exa- exactly <laughs> exactly it. And to your point, Rachel, they were not being raised by her because she was the breadwinner. She had to go perform. So they were being raised by a series of nannies and also their father at the time. Um, they were soldiers and listened to her effort, right, to like create uh, kind of like to prove that racial harmony was possible. They each this is a, a complicated statement, but I will say that the testimonies that I read from each of, like from not each of them, but from several of them as grown-ups show incredibly thoughtful, intelligent people that uh, I, I would say probably thrived despite this upbringing. Some of them did, but some of them, I mean, one person ended up in a psychiatric ward, one of the kids died by suicide. Some of them don't talk about Josephine at all. Like, so it's it, it's 12 kids, right? Like, so it's not like, it's tough to say. It's also, imagine... It's hard to me being like, Woody Allen's kids are great. Like, yeah. Yeah, but, it, but it's also hard to imagine growing up in a place where you are part of a zoo. People are peering at you through bars. I think, I, just, I think, it, I mean, 
I think it's a really difficult uh, thing to kind of look at and to judge. And I mean, this is something that we're kind of going back to again about like the difference between kind of like how we see things now and how we saw things uh you know back then and and we're talking now yeah really not that long ago like the 1950s um however even in the 1950s i think that the dialogue around what a uh, race was was far less advanced and less complex than uh what it is today and 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 i think that you know based upon that there is actually something kind of genuinely utopian in what Josephine Baker was was doing there and I mean yeah we can look at it and say that it's really deluded and yes it, it has a sort of like it smacks of a certain degree of like her own self-involvement however I think that a, a statement like that could have actually been sort of useful in a popular sense in that time because that was something the idea of races well, you know, I mean, race doesn't exist in a kind of like a you know definitive sense, but the idea of people getting from different backgrounds and ethnicities getting on together and being able to be raised together was not something that I think was a commonly held belief at that time, and so I think that this is a as a public statement, regardless of the kind of the human cost of what it might have entailed, was actually really you know forward thinking and exciting and a good thing and i think it's maybe not i would be hesitant to judge her on the same level as we would modern celebrities who do the same thing Absolutely. agreed and i think the crux of that though comes down to the human cost and i don't have an answer for this i don't have a take for once but which is just, you know, the the these were actual people living their one and only lives in these circumstances that were very difficult and cold and strange and slightly disconnected from society in a, yeah. in, a in a weird way. And is the message more important than the person? And I don't have answers for that. You know, and it's, it, as both of you are saying, like, it was real. it's complicated. And actually, what, what you said, Chris, made me think of a quote that I love from Josephine Baker, which is, nothing is ridiculous and nothing is stupid when you do it in the sense of helping humanity. I think it's quite natural that I should even be a fool if necessary in some people's sense, which also makes me think of, about her dancing, about her, her kind of like, you know, what they referred to as kind of her comedic madcap energy. And really briefly with her, with with the Rainbow Tribe, I agree with both of you, it's complicated, right? And in the 50s, this was revolutionary. By the 1970s, it got corny. It just mm. did, right? It, this, yeah, yeah. this idea, and that's just a matter of changing times, right? At that point, Don Draper is in a commune. Exactly. So <laughs> yeah. By the early 1970s, late 60s, no one's coming anymore. This castle is too much to maintain, even with Josephine Baker's constant performing, and it gets seized. By 1968, she just can't afford the castle. Actually, Princess Grace is really important, too, because she offers to adopt all the kids and take them back to Monaco. Um, another quote that I fucking love. I mean, Baker's quotes are, as you can imagine, a Gemini, are amazing. Um, so she broke into the chateau after she was kicked out in her negligee <laughs> and clung to the oven. What? She does not cook. Before being dr thrown out in the rain and suffering a heart attack, which is not something to laugh at. But she does tell reporters, quote, if I die tonight, I want to be buried in the pink nightgown of my agony. <laughs> really let that sit with you. 
You've had a heart attack. You're holding onto an oven and you look at the reporters and you go, they have a, they need a quote. I'm Josephine fucking Baker. Um, it's also, to be to be fair, even though Josephine Baker loved children, like many people who say they love children, she was not actually interested in, like, you know, raising them. She loved them in the abstract. And I see this as someone who's a child-free person. I'm not saying I want to raise anybody either. And also they got older. They became teenagers. Teenagers were kind of historically less cute than little kids. So they get sent to boarding schools. Think about this, potential parents. Please. Think about your future teenagers. That's 12 years from now. That's it. And you don't have Princess Grace. You can't send them to Monaco. Because um, Princess thing is, Grace is dead. So in 1975, Josephine Baker has her last show, uh, Josephine at Bobino, at the Bobino Theater in Paris. It is incredible, apparently. So she performs. She's in her 60s. Yep. She performs 34 songs to a star-studded crowd, including Princess Grace, of course. Uh, Carla Ponti apparently turned so- to Sophia Loren and said, quote, uh, regarde bien ça, you won't see it twice in a lifetime. And uh, four days later, Josephine Baker dies. So of, of heart issues, I believe. She died of a brain hemorrhage. Oh, is that right? Yeah, she had a lot of health issues. She had a lot of operations. She during the like the um the war years, actually. Her oldest child at the time was 22. Her youngest child was, tw- was 10. Just thinking about like how young they were when, they, when she was adopted, when they were adopted. Who raised them after she was gone? So various family friends. Some of them were actually sent back to their birth countries to, quote, reconnect with their heritage. Oh, yeah. It was really haphazard how she, frankly, like, you know, dealt with them, right? Like, I don't say that word lightly. They, they, she just didn't have the the time, really, the the energy. And also at that time, she and her husband, her last husband of the time, were divorced. She didn't, you know, it wasn't... Also, let's not underestimate French bureaucracy, but also you got that kind of money. You can get somebody to deal with it for you. Right. Um, so finally we get to kind of like the end of this haphazard and kind of long, but you've seen Josephine Baker's life. It's tough to like sum it all up. Her life, right? And we uh, famously, very famously, this is a podcast about love stories in Paris. <laughs> and it's tough with Josephine Baker because she had many lovers and not a single one of them seemed to be her great love. Mm. What seemed to be her great love, and I'm not being fucking corny here, and I'm not trying to do a callback to the alternative title of this podcast, which is, what if you could fuck a city? <laughs> <laughs> but I hazard a guess, which is to say that if any of the people we talk about this season embody that spirit, it is Josephine Baker. She famously revoked her American citizenship. Actually, during the civil rights movement, uh, the American FBI, after for years receiving her reports fr- about the Nazis, turned their eyes on her and created a dossier on her. Famously, what what the FBI did at that time in the Good 60s, job, 70s. Yeah, well done. Yeah. Um, she fucking loved and she became a French citizen. She loved Paris. I, and that's not even like, a, yeah, we all love Paris. Josephine Baker loved Paris. One of the reasons why she was determined to be a spy for as long as she was was that she said, France has given me so much, I need to give something back. And so I posit a theory that I want to open up to the two of you, which is that the love story here is actually not with another person. It is Josephine Baker and the city of Paris. That's it. Point. What do you think of that? What does that mean? Agreed. That is her most famous song, J'ai deux amours, my country in Paris. You know, and so with the one, she cut it off. And with the second, she kept forever. Mm-hmm. Paris was her great love. Yeah. I think it's a song which is reprised in Emily in Paris, not by Josephine Baker, but it's... Uh... You're absolutely fired. How dare you mention... <laughs> Are you kidding? In the Josephine Baker episode... Emily in goddamn pants? Uh, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And that was what uh, I was thinking when we were looking at Josephine Baker for this podcast was that the love that she's completely got is for for Paris itself. And you're right, it sounds corny, but um, I think I think it was probably true. Um, 
I think if we were ever going to do it, this is the episode that <laughs> actually merits it. And and I want to say, I know this is corny as well, but I really do full-heartedly believe this. I think this is also a love story between one person and freedom. Um, a lot of times I think when we think about people we love, you know, love affairs that we've been in for too long, it's because they seem to have given us a chance to be our free, true, liberated selves. And fortunately or unfortunately, I think Josephine Baker would be pretty diplomatic about this. None of the lovers she had did that for her, but Paris did, right? Like, I think that this is a story of, and I want to emphasize, a Black woman of this time period, a Black woman who was exploited in many ways, who was capitalized upon, was exploited, continues to be exploited to this day, right, in terms of, like, the the costume of it all, the dress-up of it all. It's also, the, the, the pictures of her in a banana skirt, this famous poster, mm-hmm. who's getting the proceeds from it? It's not the Rainbow Tribe. Absolutely. Like, I have no idea who's profiting off that, but it's not that. And these are also, when we say, like, profiting off of, like, it's not even, like, biopics about her, right? These are, like, sometimes, like, momentary, like, in the uh, in the movie Frida with Salma Hayek, mm-hmm. A Brief Moment, The Triplets of Belleville, an animated movie. She's become, in many ways, like, Almost, I'm trying to think of like famous posters of Paris, right? She's become part of that. But for all of that, I think this is a story of one black woman saying, I want to be free and I'm going to stay true to and devoted to and loyal to and monogamous with a city that has lent, not lent that to me, given that to me. And I've fucking earned it. I have performed here. I've worked my ass off. I've spied for you. I have given my body again and again, be it in terms of warfare, be it in terms of spectacle, be it in terms of showing you a way that even if it was problematic, even if it was fucked up, a way to perhaps towards racial harmony. I I cannot tell you, I did not know much about Josephine Baker before I started doing the research for this podcast. I I just find her to be so inspiring in all of her flaws and all of her fucked upness. And I want to end actually with a quote from the amazing writer Margaret Jefferson, who said, uh, quote, she was her own devoted muse. And I think that is something that so many people of color, so many people from marginalized communities don't get to have. Um, fucking get it, Josephine Baker. You fucking dance wherever the fuck you are. I can't wait to see you there. And now it's time for our favorite segment, Mary Fuck Kill. So for this week, I want you to think of three different genres of famous people. Ooh. So the Mary Fuck Kill is someone who's famous as a spy. Ooh. Someone who's famous as an entertainer. And someone who's famous as an advocate or an activist. Okay. So I can definitely take this. Mm-hmm. So I will marry the advocate because I want the cause to keep going. Mm-hmm. It's a cause that I believe in, I'm assuming. I will fuck the spy because that's exciting and they're not going to get information out of me. So they're going to have to focus on pleasing me mm-hmm. and I guess kill the entertainer, although they would be entertaining by definition. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my take. Um, this is a tricky one. First of all, I want to point out that anybody who is famous as a spy is um, <clears throat> probably not doing their job, yeah, particularly well. I didn't say they were competent. I just said they were famous. It's like Kirby, what's it, from Oxford? Oh, the Cambridge Spies. Yes. <laughs> um, Way to read my mind, Christopedia. <laughs> um, so, I mean... I think this is tricky. Like, the thing is, 
I believe in causes and a lot of good causes, but let's face it, advocates for causes tend to be pretty annoying, particularly on a kind of like personal interactive level. Um, I, you know, they, they're always going on about their cause. They, they serve a very good purpose. Uh, not never. sex. <laughs> yeah, which is probably not sex and probably not being in a relationship with one. But however, all right, I'm going to say I will marry the advocate. <laughs> I would, I would be playing the devil to their advocate. <laughs> um, well, I have so- to say, like, you know, Martin Luther King, <laughs> incredibly sexy also not a great husband yeah you know so it's like as long as you have the fuck nailed down Mm -hmm. it's like you don't want to be coretta scott king i don't want my whole life she's amazing i do want to be here but i also don't want to spend my whole life trying to preserve somebody else's legacy yeah um well exactly i mean yeah i don't think i'm going to be there trying to preserve their legacy particularly i probably wouldn't be a very good partner for the advocate Um, but if I'm, they'd have you, I'm, <laughs> this I'm, is the first time the MFK has been turned upon us. <laughs> I have a feeling that they would divorce me, but nevertheless, I think it's the right thing to do, probably to marry the advocate, and you know, and we'd have kind of like long discussions about the things that they believed in. Uh, I'd say, why aren't you giving me enough attention? <laughs> um, I get that it's an important cause, but. Yeah, that doesn't mean we can't have date night occasionally. And then and then I'd wake up the next day and I'd feel incredibly guilty and they'd be out doing fantastic things. Um worst. <laughs> but yeah, so <laughs> So yeah, let's say marry the advocate for that reason. Um I think That sounds like anti-reasons to me. <laughs> Hey, I I like an argument and you know, like a, a challenging situation, and uh, I yeah, and I like people who are passionate about stuff. So I think that for that, there's a reason. To Do you like people who are passionate about stuff? Counterpoint: You hate an argument. <laughs> <laughs> you hate it more than almost anybody i know yes i do <laughs> no 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 i but yes yes i do I, I see what you're doing i see what you're doing fuck the spy because i mean even if this is a basically bad spy because being famous as i've said is antithetical to spying there is something undeniably sexy about spies i think everybody says spy you're thinking james bond or something along those lines you definitely think they were training trained on at least oral sex yes like that's part of the mi6 (laughs) yeah it's 101 it's one of the first things uh so yeah fuck the spy and then i think just like kill the entertainer because ah that's entertainment (laughs) (laughs) that works as a thing to say but i don't know if killing people is entertainment rachel um (laughs) depends on what you think entertainment is right yeah um but yeah I, i'm saying kill the entertainer because uh, you know just by process of elimination and i uh, you know i i i'm not i think a lot of entertainers tend to be quite self-involved and so they wouldn't be thinking about me it's a bit of a hypocritical statement <laughs> <laughs> i suppose that's true well, hold on. This is this is my choice. <laughs> and what are, what are we on this podcast if not entertainers? This is more revealing than we might have initially suspected. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I'm a spy. Shit. Um, so I think that's I, I think that's the best uh, best I've got. I mean, it could change. I understand. So for me, it's a swift and ready. 
I'm marrying the fucking spy. No question about it. And I am really thinking about them more like in the Sherlock Holmes mode. Mm -hmm. Like I think I'd be, I don't want to be number one spy, right? My my gift is not management. My gift is lying, right? My gift is- You don't want little spy interns. (laughs) (laughs) I am not supervising your 15-year-old-an-hour spy intern. I've been a project manager. I did not enjoy it. What I'm really good about is wearing haute couture gowns, swanning about- gathering information, maybe a la Josephine. And I'm also really good at keeping secrets with one person. Like, I'm very good at being like, it's us against Oh, you're amazing at that. You You do not know the secrets I've told enough. (laughs) And no one ever will. And no one ever will. No one ever fucking will. She's amazing. Thank you. So I'm marrying the spy, and we are going to be, God, the hottest fucking spy couple. And I want to be clear that as uh, Chris, (laughs) like, you know, bad faithedly pointed out, oh, if you're a famous spy, blah, blah. No, 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 no. Because me and my partner were were famous, but people don't know that we're spies. We're kind of like a Batman crew, right? Like people, oh, they think we're philanthropists. I thought you were about to say we're only sort of famous in spy circles, like in kind of like spy industry. It's like Matahari in retrospect. That's it. Exactly. Also acceptable. We are retrospectively famous, but in the present tense. Come at us. <laughs> so that's my marriage. Um, I'm 100% fucking the entertainer. Oh, why? Because that's going to help my spydom, right? Like when I get invited to cool parties, gallery openings, weird like sex dungeons in the middle of like a sewer. That's entertainment. That's, that's entertainment. <laughs> and the show will go on. Right? I'm, I'm not happy unless I have two Gene Kelly references. <laughs> For sure. Let's talk about that at our last meeting. I thought you were referencing the jam, but it's um, <laughs> the jammer, a, a, a mod band from the 1970s who sung a song called That's Entertainment. But, you know what? Um, you Chris, <laughs> that is niche. <laughs> and when you said jam, I was like, do you mean the Michael Jackson from, song from the album Dangerous? Oh my God. Jam. Um, so yeah, so I'm fucking the entertainer because it's fun, because I love being sexy and famous, but also because, again, it is helping my spy career, our collective spy <laughs> career, I should say. And I'm not sorry. I'm absolutely killing the fucking advocate slash activist. <laughs> Have you guys ever met slash fuck someone who has, like, really good causes and intentions? I don't, I don't mean to be disparaging. It's not a great look. <laughs> you will, you will never feel good about yourself again. You really never will. Yeah. You just, they have to be there. They have to be doing the good work. I have tried to pass a few petitions being like, shouldn't advocates only be single? And, you know, <laughs> no one's really kind of come to the call that I've raised with governments. But, yeah, it's not for me. I don't, I feel guilty enough as it is. I don't need you to be better than me. Watch Jesus Christ Superstar and yeah. tell me if you want to be Mary Magdalene in that film. Literally, the Virgin Mary is a virgin. She never stops being a virgin. No, I'm That's talking about Mar- Mary Magdalene. And she's not a virgin. <laughs> Right. <laughs> she's, she's the other one. So that's who we'd marry, fuck. Marry, fuck, kill. No pun intended, oh. all the puns intended. You know what? You have to know Chris to be able to visualize that with one R in Mary. It's it's really more of a written joke. <laughs> yeah, or be English. like Nobody wants that. I would not wish that on anybody. Kill, kill, kill. From Paris, this is all of us at We'll Always Have Paris. See you next week. <laughs>